You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And today we're talking with Amrita Gurney, the VP of Marketing at Crowdriff, a visual content marketing software for over 800 travel brands and destinations, about the recent launch of Localhood, an initiative to help the community in the wake of COVID. We wanted to talk with Amrita for a couple of reasons, specifically as an example of creating a product to help your local businesses, often not the focus for growth-minded startups, and as a really interesting response to a changed landscape within the travel industry. Amrita, can you give us a short intro to yourself and what Crowdroof is all about for those people who might not be familiar with it? Sure, absolutely. So it's a very niche product, which even I had not really thought about until I joined the company. But basically, we work with travel and tourism brands who really rely on visuals as the key channel for communicating their travel experiences. And we find all of the great photo and video content people are sharing on social media around a destination. And we help those brands acquire rights to it and then use it in their digital marketing. And that's really what the core product has done for many years. Uh, We've certainly evolved over time, but we went from working with maybe 50 brands when I joined the company soon after we closed our seed round to now working with over 800 around the world. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. I'll jump right into it here. So obviously, tourism has been impacted by COVID as with every other business in the world. But beyond that, what was the specific genesis for what has become localhood? So it was interesting because we, you know, we have our core product, which is a B2B product. It's a platform that's used by marketing teams. And then when COVID happened, you know, I would say there was a convergence of a few things. First of all, we saw what was going on with all of these destinations that we work with, that their focus was really shifting to supporting their locals and not just bringing visitors to their destination. And then as locals ourselves, we were experiencing a lot of the confusion and challenge that was happening around trying to figure out, you know, what's open, what's not open, how are these businesses adapting? And then I would say the third component was, you know, as a travel tech company, we had been kind of incubating this product that was more consumer facing and already had the bones of that technology ready. And so we quickly saw an opportunity to use some of our early development and pivot to making it really focused on this new community, which is for supporting local businesses. So kind of a, you know, a perfect storm, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, but we as a company really wanted to do something to be part of the solution. And we were really happy that we've been able to pivot in this way. So would you say it, it was almost like a natural extension of the kinds of problems that, that you were solving already at Crowdriff? Or was it a, a bit of that, but also a unique response to the conditions that, that we're in right now? now? Yeah, it's very different, actually, because our core focus was really solving problems for marketing teams. And this is a community that is localhood is a community that is consumer facing. So it's definitely been an adjustment for us to think about serving consumers directly, instead of serving them through our customers who are these marketing teams that then, you know, try to attract travelers. So definitely some shifts in our thinking, you know, our, how we build our product, how we go to market, but something that we all felt really strongly about. You you typically work with the destinations on, on your core product at Crowdriff. How did you learn about what the needs were from the local business perspective? Are you working with them already in some capacity or, or was this a new audience that you had to, to kind of reach out to and learn from? Mm-hmm. 
We were already supporting our destination's interest in serving local businesses, but it was very different before. So, you know, as you can imagine, when you go to, you know, let's say you go to Colorado, uh, the businesses that exist in Colorado are the businesses that have the product quote unquote, that tourists are then experiencing. So your tour operators, your hotels, your restaurants. So we knew that those people were important to the marketing teams at these destinations. But what's changed is that these local businesses, first of all, are suffering in a way that's really unprecedented. And then also the locals themselves all of a sudden are looking for a trusted source of information. So that was definitely a shift for us in thinking about new ways that our existing customers could serve those locals. And to answer your first question about, you know, how did we recognize that this was a need people had, we had started hosting these community calls. So we would bring our community together every couple of weeks. And it became very, very clear right away that their focus was very much on supporting their locals and their local businesses. Oh, interesting. So you you mentioned sort of uncovering these these new needs. Would you say that there was, you know, a specific business need that you were also discovering? Or was this really an experiment uh, in terms of, of rolling out localhood to to just see what happened? Yeah, I mean, we've seen over time that consumers really trust content from other consumers. And so, you know, we'd already been working in, in this space on our core platform, but we started to see that local specific content was very unique. So, you know, I live in the Ronsi neighborhood of Toronto, and I've been living here for a long time. I've gotten to know my local businesses. So when they were suffering, it became very personal to me just as a local to be able to support them. And so I think that we have uncovered perhaps a new way of serving these businesses that we had not really thought about initially at Crowdriff. But funny enough, a lot of this content is now content that our core customers actually want. So in a roundabout way, we have not only created something that is going to serve our local communities, but I believe our customers now are also, they've, they've certainly shown us that they're very keen to find ways to use this content themselves. Mm -hmm. And so this is... I guess the actual the solution or or the problem from the consumer's perspective was driven a lot by what you saw on you know it's happening on Instagram stories and Twitter and Snapchat where everybody was sharing and or inquiring about local businesses. There was really just kind of this organic development of a need for this content. When you see that, how do you I guess how do you separate the platform? where this is happening from, from the underlying problem that people are trying to solve so that you can figure out what is, you know, what is your slice on solving that problem? Yeah, that's a great question because I think a lot of products, they, they're they not usually inventing a completely new need. And so we saw behaviors that were showing us that there was a jobs to be done around this. And I would say that, um, you know, our CEO, Dan, who is a, a really smart product person, you know, he really recognized that people are trying to solve this problem, but they're doing it in a way that feels really incomplete. And so we felt that the fact that all of this sharing was happening either through word of mouth or through SMS or through Instagram stories, the problem was that it was really fragmented and a lot of it is uh, ethereal. So, you know, it might be there for 24 hours and then it disappears. So we felt that we could create a solution that would address the same pain, but in a way that really address some of the gaps that also exist with the current solutions around this. Mm -hmm. You you spoke a bit 
to uh, how how localhood in a very roundabout way is is almost like a test bed for content that that feeds back into your main product. Do you think this is expanding the the roadmap of the core crowd riff platform and and do you think it it also speaks to the the kind of experiments that you might run in the future as well? Definitely. So I think one of the biggest things that we've learned through localhood is that the format of the content which is not to get too technical but it's based on the Google AMP format which is, you know, mobile first very fast. It's really meant to be a very visual communication platform. So that's given us a lot of experience of building on this on this framework. And we know that this story-based content, I mean, we've all seen it, that it's really exploded. And so it's allowed us to really push the envelope in that area and see new ways of creating visual content that marketers can use eventually. And we already have been uh, testing this format with a couple of customers on our core platform. And this is just confirmed for us that this is a format that is not going away. And we do believe that we are learning a ton from localhood that is going to help us with our core business as well. So you mentioned that you had an, you have an existing product or you've got an existing some existing technology built that, that you use for this. Did you do any, uh, I guess, kind of discovery research around what are all the different ways you could solve this problem? Or did you really just say, hey, we've got something that we can use for this and run with it more in an intuition-led decision about how you solve this problem? Yeah, I would say it was definitely more the latter, partly because of timing. And I think it, when COVID sort of started uh, affecting our company and also all of the businesses that uh, are around us, I think we we knew that we needed to do something. And so we didn't really have the luxury of time in a lot of ways, because we knew that people were suffering and needed help right away. And I would say that Dan in particular, again, he's he's just, a again, a really smart, intuitive product guy, which is why I think he's a successful founder. And so he really recognized that we already had some technology that could be applied in a different way. And we've really been, you know, learning as we build. Uh, we were learning a ton. This has really felt like building a little mini startup inside another tech company, which has been a lot of fun. And it's been really good for me to sort of, you know, sit side by side with Dan and the product team and watch them really absorb all of these new scenarios that we are now confronted with and find ways to move quickly and iterate existing technology to serve people in new ways. Just as an aside on this, I imagine, you know, like every other company, when you started working from home or, or implemented work from home as as all the other companies in Toronto did around the same time in March, you were probably just dealing with how do we function as a remote company? How did you handle doing that as well as this like major project product initiative, uh, both in response to COVID? Was was it helpful? Did it like rally people? I guess in that time of uncertainty, or was it? Uh, I don't know. Was it stressful in any way trying to <laughs> trying to focus both on how we work and the work itself? Yeah, definitely a blend, I would say. Like, I think as a company, people wanted to help. So I think there was this very genuine interest in doing something that would feel really helpful and productive. But it's been intense. Uh, there's definitely no doubt about it. I think that, 
you know, when we were in the early days of sort of doing this, it was a really small team. We still are a very small team inside Crowdrift that's working on this between product and marketing. And there were days when I just wished we could all be in a room together and just spend weeks, you know, working out of the same physical space and posting things up on the wall and just kind of absorbing all of this through osmosis as well. So that's been really challenging. And I think that we've had to overcome some of the natural barriers that working virtually does present around just communication and you know being on Zoom calls all day. So it, it's definitely been challenging, but I think that like many other companies, we're just, you know, we sometimes get things right and uh, sometimes we get things wrong and we just have to learn. And I think everyone's been very patient with each other, knowing that there may be times where things just feel, at the beginning, I just remember, it just felt really disorganized. <laughs> and it took us a while to get into a rhythm of even knowing, okay, do we do daily standups or how do we keep track of all of these different things that we're learning? Um, so it's been a work in progress, but I'm happy to see that things are evolving and getting better as time goes on. So pulling on that thread a bit further, when when the idea for this uh, bubbled up within the company, how grassroots was this? How much do you did you feel like you needed to, I'd say, get permission versus just kind of running with the idea and, and seeing where it led? So luckily, I mean, this, this initiative really was driven by our CEO and co-founder. So the permission piece didn't really need to exist because he was so uh, enthusiastic about it. And so I would say that really opened up a lot of doors for us and gave us a lot of freedom to just dedicate a lot of time to this. So for me personally, you know, I normally am running marketing for the whole company and I was able to really shift a lot of my focus to really helping incubate the go-to-market side of, of localhood. And then of course we had a product team who also had dedicated people, but it was less than 10% of the company. So I think we wanted to be careful that we didn't you know, pivot too hard. We still have a healthy business that we're running and we're still growing. So, but we also did want to make sure that we could work in a, in a lean and scrappy way. So I would say that we've, uh, we've dedicated a, a small but nimble team. And in some ways it's kind of reminded me of the benefit of having a small team in some ways, because you, you know, you're all in a room together and that whole cliche about, you know, the one pizza kind of team. Mm -hmm. It does it does exist and and it's been kind of nice to be reminded of how quickly you can move when there's fewer people who are making decisions. It seems like, well, 10 10% of the team in a company the size of Crowdrith is still a fairly significant chunk of the company. What did you need to have confidence to make that type of investment in this initiative? I would say the main thing that we recognized right away was that this wasn't going to be short-lived. So we wanted to build something that would actually provide value to people well beyond COVID because otherwise, you're right, would it make sense to dedicate so much of the team on something that might just last, you know, four to eight weeks. So it became pretty clear very early on when we first even introduced the idea of this to our community, we were really shocked at the response. Like we had over 150 destinations raise their hand to bring Localhood to their city within, I think, 24 hours of telling them that this, <laughs> this project was underway. So I think that that was actually something that led us to believe that, you know, this is something that can live beyond COVID. And I do think we've uncovered a new need around local discovery that hopefully will be something that's very long lasting. What would you say are, are the unknowns or problems that you really had to dig into for local hood that, that 
I guess, stepped outside of your comfort zone around the the existing product? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for us is that localhood in some senses is a bit of a marketplace. So you've got people who I'm going to call them our audience, who are locals, who will go to the website and use it to actually discover a business. And then we have the people who are creating the content. And, you know, that's a small subset of your larger audience. And then the third group, which It's been really interesting to see how we serve these three groups. But the third group is, of course, the local businesses. And we learned very early on that the three of them aren't really participating equally in localhood. And probably the biggest thing we learned is that these small businesses are so overwhelmed right now, and many of them are not particularly tech savvy. So even though this community is meant to serve them, we need to serve them in a way that doesn't require a lot of effort on their part. And so that was something that we learned very early on because we originally thought that, okay, all three of these constituents are kind of the same. We learned that it's really not the case and we need to think differently about how we engage these three different groups of people. And then, of course, on top of that, there's the destination who wants to support their local business and and serve their locals. So in a way, I would say that's even a fourth group that we had to serve. That must just be a challenge working. There, there's so many stakeholders involved kind of across the spectrum of this initiative to manage everybody while while they're all running through, I guess, a tremendous time of certainty, whether you're a local business or a local travel destination. It's, uh, <laughs> I guess, a, 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 it's a, a, a people management challenge as much as a, a technology challenge here. Absolutely. And I think like any early product, there are a bunch of assumptions that we got wrong. And then there were some that we got right. And so even knowing how to balance these different groups and, you know, also, you know, trying to share that communication between product and marketing when you have a super small team and, and, you know, it's, it's a product that kind of straddles product and marketing. So that was also interesting because, you know, normally our product gets built by the product team and marketing kind of gets involved later. So that was also something that was different for us. And I know I was listening to uh, your episode with um, Emily, I believe, who was talking about this, this issue at uh, VoiceFlow as well, where it's, it can be interesting when you've got, you know, two teams that overlap, but at the same time, they have their own kind of distinct value that they bring to bringing this product to market. So uh, before before we even got into uh, recording, you mentioned that the, the bones of Localhood was already a Skunkworks initiative at, at Crowdriff. How did you pivot that, that internal project or what did it take to actually get it out the door and, and turn it into what we see today? I mean, in some ways it felt like, you know, we probably, you know, repurposed a core piece of it, but then the, so certain things stayed the same, like the the way these stories actually look on localhood, I would say that's probably the main thing that stayed the same. So if you're a consumer and you're scrolling through or swiping through these stories on your phone, that experience looks very similar, but everything else actually was really different. So the website that encases all of these stories, we started from scratch. So we had to come up with a name, a brand, the entire web experience, and then the experience of actually creating these stories. We, again, had some infrastructure that existed, but our product team really put in a great effort to adapt to the fact that this was going to be used by consumers in a different way. And so they had to think through new ways of repurposing this technology. So, you know, luckily we weren't starting from the very beginning, but at the same time, I would say, you know, the product has come so far since we first thought of this idea, you know, two months ago. 
so the technology is one part of this product. Um, the the content itself seems like the other the other major component of it. How much did you have to seed out the initial content to to help validate the idea or to communicate what the potential is for this? Yeah, that was a really interesting experience to go through because we didn't know what would motivate people to create this content for free. You know, so we aren't working with paid influencers for the most part. You know, most of the initial stories were all seeded by locals. And so we definitely had to experiment with different ways of A, finding the right people, and then also figuring out like what would make them want to do this. And so, you know, we started with our own team, which was a real help to us. So it was a nice culture initiative where we just, you know, rallied the the company to say, listen, we need to get our first hundred stories created on localhood. And so we we just asked people to go out and support their local businesses. And then we even, um, you know, gave some perks to people. So we had one week, for example, where we wanted to hit that hundred story number and we gave everyone in the company $50 to go and buy something, which was a great uh, boost <laughs> to getting those stories created. And then again, we've learned through trial and error and also through working really closely with the creator. So we have a community manager, Talia, on our team who actually is onboarding creators one by one. So oh, wow. we decided to take kind of that superhuman approach where you have to actually go through onboarding with an actual person uh, in order to become a creator. And so, you know, a lot of people dropped off at that point because they didn't really want to do that. But the ones who did go through that process have ended up being amazing and super active. So we've learned a ton. I mean, it feels like a million years ago, but uh, (laughs) we've definitely learned a lot about how to bootstrap that initial content creation. Can you dive in a bit more in terms of what what is motivating the creators or, or, you know, what is the driving force behind creators on your platform? Sure. So one of the things that we've noticed is that there are certain people who are just naturally um, supportive of their local businesses, like, and there's no real particular profile. You might be like, I look at myself, I'm a particular age group. And then there might be somebody else who's 10 years younger than me. And I think the key for both of us is that number one, we we like creating content already. So we're naturally creating this content on other platforms. And then I think there is that kind of tie for us with local businesses. So some people just really want these businesses to do well. And uh, so it's been hard to know just by looking at someone's profile, whether or not they'll be that way. But that has been a common ingredient. So they're local champions. They they want to help their local businesses. And they don't always even know these people personally. I happen to know a lot of my local neighborhood businesses personally because I've been shopping here for so long. But I think there's this, I don't know, just this extra ingredient of just wanting to do something more altruistic. And that's been definitely brought to life during COVID because I think we've all probably experienced, unfortunately, you know, seeing some of these empty storefronts or, you know, seeing businesses that have been around for a generation, you know, at risk of closing. And that's been really tough. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like everyone's in a pretty helpless position in dealing with COVID. You're just kind of stuck staying at home. So it almost gives people a, a feeling that they're contributing and and. and helping to support where they can or or do their part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that we've learned, funny enough, from our core product, which was focused on user-generated content, so, you know, photos that are being shared on Instagram, we often get asked, why do these people give permission for, let's say, Destination BC to use their photo in an ad or on their website? 
And the truth is that most of these people are having a great experience in that destination. And they're not doing this to make a living. Like it's, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people who are visiting BC every year. And so they're just doing this for fun to share this content with their friends and family. And so for the most part, I think people just have gotten in the habit now that social media is so prevalent of having their content be quite public. And so that's been a common thread that we've learned that there are going to be some people who, again, just feel good about creating and sharing this content and they have no other agenda beyond that. I'd, I'd love to go a bit deeper on, on the content itself, especially during that early phase where it was really just employees creating these stories. Did you learn anything about, you know, the, the format or the way that, that folks approached creating this content that, that turned into sort of a, a best practice or a way to create something that really resonated with people? We did. So I think at the beginning, everyone was trying to really stylize their photos and videos to make it, you know, the lighting really good and like very Instagrammy almost. And and then we did some user testing afterwards and we realized that uh, one of the most interesting things that we realized was that, you know, the early stories, a lot of them featured the person in the story. So I might be on camera talking about these earrings I bought. And what we realized is that for a lot of people, if they were just browsing the website, they don't know me and they don't really care. <laughs> and so we learned that they were more interested in the shots that featured the product or the experience of the product and less about having the person in the content, which is different from social media because one of the things we learned through Crowdriff is that a lot of the popular content are the photos which are selfies or that have these, you know, people in the shots. And so it's been interesting to see what the needs are for this audience and how every social channel, I think, has its own culture. And while this isn't really a social network per se, there are elements of that in, you know, the content and the way users are interacting with that content. So that was definitely something we learned early on. And then I would say the other thing that we learned was just trying to figure out how much content is needed in a story? So how many frames are needed? Do you need to have photos or videos? And I think we're still playing around with what that ideal length of content is to see, you know, how much will people swipe before they swipe up to then buy something from that business? And that's that's still something we're doing testing on. In terms of, in, in terms of I guess, the, the timeline that existed to bring this to market, it seemed like when, or I guess when, when COVID hit the point where, we, we were everyone was staying from home, businesses were shutting down. A lot of companies from e-commerce to content platforms to to the travel industry were looking to solve that local the local discovery, local commerce problem. Did you see this as a as a race to market in any way to help introduce a solution for these businesses? I think the urgency for us was less about getting there before other people and more around getting there quickly enough that it could actually be really helpful to small businesses. So for example, we know that uh, one of the other great initiatives that's launched across Canada is Shop Here. And we've actually partnered with Shop Here. So we feel that there's some natural places for us to work together with these initiatives uh, rather than feeling like we're in competition. So I would say our, our urgency was more just make sure that this gets out there so that it's helpful right now when people are experiencing a lot of pain. To, to address the specific market and need, how much do you think the, the experiential part of, of localhood matters? You know, you've chosen a stories format for, for delivering that content. 
What makes that a good fit for what you were trying to do? That's been definitely a core of the local hood experience. And, you know, really, if we just look at the popularity of stories, it's been the most popular content format in the history of the internet. So in terms of the growth over the last couple of years, so it was kind of unavoidable and inevitable. Mm -hmm. And we know that people are just in the habit of creating these stories, you know, through through their phones. So that part was not so much a debate for us anymore. We just sort of saw this as, you know, uh, inevitable. And then the other thing that we realized with these stories is that, to me, it's kind of a a next generation form of search where in the past, you know, if you go right now and you search on Yelp, for example, you know, or Google reviews, it's all very text-based. And so there's something about this format that really shows you what you're potentially going to buy. And the fact that it's taken by a local is also part of what I think is the benefit of localhood or the thing that's really unique is that every person has like their own individual ID. This is not some anonymous reviewer. And so I do believe that that is also the secret ingredient, the, the, the authenticity of that first person story with the visual mobile friendly format of the stories platform that's built on Google AMP. In, in terms of bringing this solution to market, what, end, what ended up being the most complex aspect of, of getting it built and launched? Ah, that's a great question. I think, you know, taking a technology that was really in its early days and getting it ready so that it was consumer facing and could handle larger volumes of users, that's definitely been challenging. And I think our product team has done a great job of just adapting and trying to recognize that it's not so much about, you know, having to keep everything the way it was and more about trying to untangle what are the pieces that we can continue to use and what are the pieces that we need to rebuild. And then doing that while the marketing team is out there getting the word out. And so there's some natural, I don't even want to use the word tension, but I think there's just some natural like push and pull because we want to get this out there quickly, but we also want it to be a great experience. And so that was something that we really had to figure out and we're continuing to figure out. So, you know, as we've as we've discussed, part of the engine of the site or the meat of the site is really the the content, the the stories. How are those actually built? Is, is have did you also build a tool to create those and and if so, how did you decide, you know, this is this is good enough to to go to market with? So, we we did have again the early bones of a tool which we're calling the Stories Creator. It's just a, a way to actually create these stories. And we originally had built it actually for a desktop experience. So that was one of the things that was challenging because right out of the gate, it wasn't a mobile experience. We were originally building this creator for our marketing teams who are all creating this content at work on their desktops. So there was definitely some things that we had to learn around that. And then I would say that we we recognized, I think our product team again did a really good job of figuring out what are the key atomic unit, like what's the atomic unit of a story and what are the key components of that story and how do we build this with uh, an experience that a consumer would feel comfortable using? So it's definitely been tricky. You know, it's not been, I don't know if it would have been harder or easier if we had been starting from scratch. I think some of the things work to our favor because a lot of the format 
sort of questions were answered very early on, but then I think applying it in this new context, certainly there were some technical challenges that the product teams had to navigate that uh, we may not have anticipated when we first started. Do you have a, like a roadmap of, of you know, features that you want to keep adding to, to the story creator? Definitely. So we, we're operating right now in sort of a, a monthly planning cycle. And we have a lot of user feedback now because when we first started building this, the only people using this were people at Crowdriff. And so we've now, of course, opened this up to a lot of other people. And so we're hearing firsthand um, the things that people find really easy to use, the other things that people find challenging, things that they want us to do. And so there have already been some great iterations that feel very minor, but they end up when you're creating these stories over and over again, they are super useful. And so I would say that um, we definitely have a backlog of ideas of things that we want to build. And it's really just a question of, again, balancing the needs of the marketing team and the rollout plan with the, you know, building things in the right way from a product perspective. With this, with this particular product, you've got, so you've got your creators, you've got the end, end content consumers, and then you're, are you working with the, the, the local organizations with the civic uh, or I forget what the acronym is, but yeah. the civic organizations. So you've got three different kind of customers slash users on this product. We do. And I think that's actually a really good point. Like initially, we weren't sure. We were sort of considering them all in the same way. And I think very early on, we had to make decisions around, are we optimizing for the consumer, the creator, or for the DMO or the destination marketing organization? And so where we are right now is I would say we are optimizing first for the consumer. So we want it to be a really great discovery experience. And then we are taking a community-based approach to the creators. So we're really working hand in hand with them to build a creator experience that feels like it allows them to really, you know, scratch that itch around supporting their local businesses and also, you know, recognizing that it's an early product. So looking for people who are willing to work with an early product that, you know, may is definitely not going to be built the same way as Instagram, you know, five years in. So I would say that's been something that's been really important. And then on the DMO side, that was one of the big questions that we had to ask was, you know, how do we work with these destinations? And so we've tried uh, right now, we're certainly um, bringing this to market in Toronto, mostly on our own, but we have piloted local hood in two cities in the US where we are working with the destination. And so that's been a lot of learning as well for us around what are their needs? How do we work hand in hand with them? You know, how do they want to use this content? What is their role? Because localhood is a separate initiative, but they certainly are really influential and also want to be doing the right thing for their local businesses. So again, I know I've said this a few times, <laughs> but you know, it's been a lot of learning for us. And it's for me personally, it's been super exciting because it's just like, yeah, just like, you know, building a product from scratch is really interesting. On on that note and and on the process of learning, you started with just sort of a handful of, of categories or buckets here in Toronto, uh, you know, delivery restaurants and so on. And that certainly expanded, I think, even from the first time I, I saw the site until now. How have you sort of managed that that expansion and that categorization as, as the sites uh, got some uptake? Yeah, so I think uh, the first thing was that our, our product team did a really great job of kind of building a back-end system where we could have different kinds of categorizations so that as we discover 
new categories, not just in Toronto, but we've learned that every city is unique. And so the two cities we're working with in the US, they have different needs around categories that we may not have in Toronto. So the, the product team has done a really nice job of building a backend that allows us to have some flexibility around this categorization. And then I think the next thing that we're trying to solve from a product perspective and even from a user perspective is, you know, answering that question around um, discovery around your neighborhood. So if you are in Leslieville, you may want to find businesses in Leslieville and you may not be that interested in businesses in North York. So how do we serve that location-based perspective as well? That's probably been one of the most requested pieces of feedback that we've received from users. So that's something that we have to manage. And then otherwise on the front end, I think again, our front end team Having now built this for Toronto as the first city, they've learned how to, you know, we've we've gone through a lot of the the typical user experience design challenges around how did we display these categories? How do people actually get to these categories? We've played around with different versions of the page that you land on. And so again, it's been a ton of fun just figuring out how to solve these different problems. So once this was ready for release, I guess, what's the order of operations in terms of announcing the platform, introducing it to your different customer segments? Do you, do you start with the creators and then go up to DMOs and then consumers or did, did everyone, was everyone made aware of it all at once? How did you approach that? Yeah, so that's another thing that we we learned, or, well, not early, we learned it once we did launch in Toronto, which is that... We decided to, originally we just, we launched it and we sort of said, you know, this is available to everyone. And we learned that a lot of people wanted to become creators right away, but we feel like we want to take the creator side of this experience really slowly to make sure that people have a good experience and that, you know, again, some people may have different motivations. So we've learned that focusing on the audience side has been the right way to go. And so we've made some tweaks to the website to really focus on that. And then we are almost managing the creator community in in a separate way. And again, we, we didn't know that when we launched. And when I look back at the last eight weeks, you know, we did a soft launch to family and friends. And that's where we uncovered some of these issues around the fact that these different constituents aren't actually equal. And we need to figure out how to prioritize some over the other. And I imagine other product teams who are working on marketplaces have similar challenges. And we're still figuring this out, to be honest. In terms of pulling the trigger on that launch and, and just kind of getting it out there, who did you expect that that initial audience to be? And are you seeing an audience that you didn't expect take to the platform as well? So I would say one of the biggest, uh, I wouldn't even say if it's, it's a surprise, I would say it's more of a hope. Like we thought we were building something that was really useful. And we've gotten so much media interest just in the last couple of weeks since we launched. So I'm really happy that it's tapped into something that people feel uh, serves a very unique problem that we're all experiencing locally. So that's been really a nice surprise. So I would say that's probably been the main thing that we've learned. And then otherwise, we haven't really yet, I don't think we've learned enough to identify a core segment that might be different from what we've initially, you know, thought of. Mm. But I would say the the big sort of question mark for us is like really honing in on 
who's that person who is the right person to create these stories? And that's something that I think we still have some learning to do. And so we're doing a lot more um, user interviews and just really meeting our our creators over Zoom and, and in unique ways to just understand how can we build this creator community in a way that um, serves a need for them. How did you approach discovery for the, I guess, for both the creators and the consumers of the content? I, I imagine that being on CP24 is helpful for getting some degree of awareness. What other, I guess, tactics have you employed? How do you get, how do you get people interested in creating for the platform and then other people interested in consuming it on your platform? Mm-hmm. That's also been something we've had to really figure out. So on the <laughs> audience side, um, <laughs> You know, on the audience side, we've tested, I would say, three kind of go-to-market approaches. So we've tried just organic, you know, social media, just posting this content, building up our audience on social media. We've tried using some paid channels. So we're doing some tests with paid ads on Instagram in particular, which have done really well for us. And then we've tried, you know, the media angle, which has worked really well. And I think that the next phase for us on the audience side is to get people to just come back to the site. So one of the things we need to figure out is, okay, we get them there once because they've heard about it on CP24. How do we make sure there's enough value and maybe some other hooks to get them to come back. So we're experimenting with things around email, for example, and sharing. So that's really what we've done on the audience side. And then on the creator side, I would say it's, we originally thought that it was going to be the same as the audience side, but what we're going to do with creators instead is take a very grassroots sort of invite only approach so that our happy creators who are super active and engaged can introduce localhood to other people that they feel would be a good fit and then really build the community out that way and that's something that we are just starting in toronto and so we're going to learn a lot to see if that works and then in these uh, two u.s cities where we're working hand in hand with the destination the other interesting thing that we've learned is that these tourism bureaus have relationships already with local, you know, BIAs, or they often have their own ambassador programs. So they've been really helpful in bringing localhood to their community by finding us some creators within those networks as well. How would you say you've, you've threaded the needle in terms of the reaching a specific audience or finding a, a segment, you know, differentiating between people who maybe just, you know, want to know how to help local businesses versus people who are looking for, you know, something really specific, like a like a good uh, burger in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they're one of the things that we've learned is that they are different segments and that everybody doesn't need to be a local champion. So, you know, I think our initial hypothesis was that, oh, everyone's going to want to go and create these stories. And then we realized that, you know what, not everyone wants to do that. Some people will just use this as a useful website. And you know what, that's totally fine. And then even on the localhood website itself, there are two ways that you can discover this content. So you can do a Google search and you can come in through a search result. And then we have people who are going to hear about the website and then come in through the homepage and then have more of a browsing experience. So we have been starting off with the audience side by just looking at ways, again, to, to build that connection through email to start off with so that if they, they like it, they can 
be notified every week as new stories come to light. And then I think we will have to find new ways to continue to make sure that that content is surfaced when people are just searching for something. And I think it's totally okay for some people to just use this as a useful website. And then there'll be a small subset of those who have more of a connection to that community side of things. Interesting. And so you, you've you touched on this is live in Toronto, and then you've got two US cities that are that are being queued up to for, for launch. I guess, how are you thinking about expansion at this time? Because it sounds like there's some aspects of this process that are fairly, fairly hands-on and labor-intensive, especially on the, the, the curation of creators. How do you handle that expansion where you're where you're going fast enough to kind of capture the capture the demand that that's at, at its peak right now or well that that is growing right now uh, versus being able to maintain it and do all the work required for that? I know honestly that's a million dollar question. It's like the conversations we're having right now because like I said, we've got these you know, 150 destinations, which is super exciting. You know, they all are on our wait list. They want, like, we have had so many people just message us, say, like, when can we bring this to our city? So that's really great. It's kind of a, a marketer's dream. On the other hand, um, you know, we want to make sure that the experience is really good. So we still have to answer that question, to be honest. I think we will decide in the next week or two. I don't think we're going to sit on this forever. And there might also be an in-between where maybe there's, you know, instead of going from zero to 150, maybe there's like the next group of people that we bring in. But we we still just need to figure out a lot of the questions that you were mentioning. Um, things like, you know, how do we manage a creator community that's in the hundreds or thousands instead of in the in the dozens? How do we manage the relationships with all of these destinations? How do we handle this from a technical perspective when you've got, you know, an order of magnitude of, you know, 10x what we're currently serving? So we recognize that it's not just a question of, sure, like, let's just roll this out to everybody right away, that we want to make sure that we're really thoughtful about it. In terms of, of measuring this after launch, did you set any benchmarks or, or KPIs for what success for localhood looked like? And how, how different are, are, are those KPIs from the ones that you're looking at for the core uh, Crowdriff platform? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, we, we definitely are tracking different metrics. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting for us as a marketing team is just recognizing that the metrics are different because it's a, it's a consumer platform. But at the end of the day, it's still a marketing funnel to a large degree. And so we are tracking everything from how many people come to localhood every day, how many of them are returning visitors, how many of them are clicking on stories. And then on each of our stories, there's a swipe up like you might expect where you swipe up and then you can click on a buy button to go straight to support that business. So we're actually tracking that full user experience. And then we're also tracking the creator experience to see who's raising their hand to become a creator, who's joining the onboarding, and then who, you know, who's active. So how many active creators do we have every week? And we're doing this now for each of these three cities, as well as a roll-up metric. So it is a lot of data, but it is really insightful. And we knew right away from the beginning that it was really important for us to look at this so that we didn't build this thing and then say, oh, we think this is successful. Like we have some very, you know, I would say more, you know, quantitative metrics that we're tracking. And then on the Crowdrift side, you know, it's a B2B product. So the numbers are very different. You know, we're not talking about thousands of 
uh, leads coming into our website every day. It's it's a much smaller number, and the you know it's a product that costs money. So there's a sales cycle. They have to talk to a salesperson. So I would say that um, the main difference that I would say exists between the two is that the consumer experience is much more directly trackable, whereas with a B2B product that's sold over many months, we know that they are hearing about Crowdrift through conferences, through ads, through you know multi-channel marketing. And so it's not always as easy to directly attribute this one thing we did to the reason that they bought. Whereas with a consumer platform that's kind of more of a quick experience. Uh, this is similar to my experience when I was working at audiobooks.com. You know, it was very easy to say, okay, they saw this, they clicked on this. And so we were really able to optimize our efforts because of that. What kind of feedback have you received from the from the businesses themselves, this, the local businesses? I mean, every business that we've talked to, like they're just, you know, desperate for more attention. So, mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of businesses who just want to get their stories featured on Localhood. I would say that, you know, many of them, they just want to know, like, how can we also have a presence on there? And because we're not designing this website for businesses, we've really tried to find the right way to capture their information and then get the local to go out and make a story about that business. And I still feel like we have some work to do to make that more clear to them and to make the effort on their part super super low so that the customers do all the work and the businesses just benefit from it. You mentioned that this was a, a really cross-team effort between marketing and product. How would you say your your approach to working that way or even your approach to, to you know, your function at Crowdriff has changed when you're building this sort of small-scale locale, very, you know, for one defined locale versus thinking about uh, destinations across the world? Yeah, I would say that Probably the biggest thing that I've learned is that we've almost had to reposition what marketing does inside the company. And I remember, again, when I was at Audiobooks, that was probably the other close to, closest experience to marketing, probably owning more of that sort of user experience than maybe a lot of people are used to. So, you know, part of what we needed to do was to just talk to the product team and kind of figure out who owned what and how do we still kind of work together but have our own separate teams so that's been something that we've been you know mindful of and i've i've learned as well that marketing can feel like a bit of a black hole to a lot of people and so just letting the you know letting the rest of the company know that it's okay for us to you know to give input into that sort of front end of the user experience and then i think our product team has been really you know, great to recognize that the lines aren't always super solid. And so we've just had to over communicate and just make sure there have been times where, you know, we probably should have had a meeting that didn't happen. And so we're just kind of figuring out how do we make sure that we're all working together, but that people still feel like that they have independence and ownership. And, and it hasn't always been straightforward. And I think that you know, I really appreciate what a, a true collaboration this has been. And I think on both teams, there's been a lot of respect for the different skills that each of us brings and just figuring out a way to solve the problem for the end consumer uh, and recognizing that we each have different roles to play. That, that one feels true, regardless of what product you're working on or what the situation <laughs> is. Definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> might just be yeah. heightened in this scenario. Um, okay. So uh, I think just kind of one last question to summarize all of this would be, uh, and, and I'll say this with a caveat that 
I, I guess you've been working on this product for more or less eight weeks. We're only three months into the pandemic. And as you mentioned, this isn't going away anytime soon. What do you see as like the longer term impacts that COVID's going to have on the travel industry? Do you, do you feel like there is going to be more of a push towards local in the future? Are these behaviors changing? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think we all, we're all making our predictions and I know I'm sure some of what I say now I'm going to look back at in a year or maybe even <laughs> six months and kind of laugh at. But I think, um, first of all, I think we've all seen that any kind of tourism recovery is going to start with locals just getting out and supporting their local businesses. And many of us only feel safe doing things locally right now. So I think that is a very natural place where that's going to start. And then we are seeing now, certainly not just in Canada, but also in Europe, that regional travel is starting to open up. So, you know, you've probably heard, for example, in the Atlantic provinces, they have their Atlantic bubble where you can actually travel within the Atlantic provinces. BC has also moved into their next phase of recovery where people can travel within BC. So I think that's the next step. And then, you know, I still feel like international travel is going to take a while to come back, unfortunately. And so, you know, who knows how long that might take. It might be six to 12 months. And I think a lot of this is just going to depend on what happens with the pandemic and how different communities are able to get this under control. But we we do know that in some ways, this may just be a bit of a, a great reset for tourism where how people travel may, there may be some longer term changes that we might not even anticipate. And I imagine that some of the fears that we have are going to go away once we are able to find safer and healthier ways to get out there and have these experiences. And I think the one thing that I don't think will ever go away is people's desire to travel. I think that travel taps into this very core desire of people to get out and um, explore new ways of doing things, meet different people, try different foods, experience different cultures. And so that is not going to go away. I think you know, where you travel to and how frequently you travel might change. And I think there might be some good things that come out of this as well around sustainable travel and environmentally friendly travel as well. That's awesome. Well, as we've been watching Localhood roll out, it's great to see that this, you know, this response to, I guess, what is a very un unprecedented uh, situation that we're all in. Uh, it, it's it's great to see companies out there trying to solve solve it, support local businesses, support travel destinations as part of that. So thank you very much for joining us today to talk about all of those things and, and walking us through how this uh, product came to life. Yeah, no, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I love your podcast. So it's uh, really nice to be a guest today. Hey, we appreciate it so much. And a big thank you to everyone out there who's listening. Toronto locals, you can find tons of amazing businesses that you can support on localhood.com and find more about data-driven marketing software for the travel and tourism industry at crowdriff.com. Framework is part of the Spec Network, a podcast network built to help designers and developers level up. You can find a lot more shows like Framework over at spec.fm. Thanks to Drew Looper, who edits and helps to produce this show. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, help more listeners find the show by leaving a review or rating on iTunes or recommend this podcast to a friend. And if you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or to tell your own, we'd love to hear from you. And our contact details and Twitter handles are on our website, framework.is. See you next time.